You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. I am honoured to have Brad Guy in the studio, the author of Free Fall here on In Your Face. Welcome to the show, Brad. Hi, thanks for having me. Your book is extraordinary. Tell us about what happened. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Where to start? So, Free Fall is a story of how I survived a freak accident nearly 10 years ago. And Free Fall, the title, comes from Free Falling. I was skydiving in a tandem skydive. And there was a parachute malfunction, which meant we were left free-falling from 15,000 feet, going 80 k's an hour, and hit the ground. My injuries were pretty severe. I broke my spine, tore the ligaments in my neck, and had a whole bunch of cracks and bruises. Had to learn how to walk again, had to learn how to drive again, basically rebuilt my life from the ground up. And that's a very, very shortened (laughs) headline of what the book's about. But essentially, it details my entire recovery from that trauma. And in the book, I talk about how I was able to do it, how I put one foot in front of the other, the severity of my injuries, dealing with a near-death experience, PTSD, depression. And I just felt like it was time to put that whole experience into a book. So, free falls here. How on earth did you survive that? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I have pondered that over the past 10 years, and there's definitely a technical aspect as to how. Luckily, the tandem instructor, as we were falling, was able to maneuver us to some open land on a golf course, and we missed all obstruction, didn't hit any cars, didn't hit a highway. We were lucky just to land on Earth, obviously with the injuries, and we just survived. But there's a technical aspect, but there's also the spiritual aspect, I guess you could say. I'm not really sure why I survived. I've tried to grapple with that myself, but I think now I'm putting purpose into my life 10 years later, and a big part of that purpose was sharing my story. So the instructor survived as well? Yeah, yeah, he did. And all these injuries were lower body, mine were all upper body, uh, because I landed on top of him. So we were still strapped together at that stage when we landed. So he did survive. He's more of a private person, so... He's just going to keep to himself, and here I am sharing my story. But, yeah, he essentially saved my life that day. So how did it change you emotionally? Mm. I mean, and and as you alluded to before, spiritually? Everything. Everything changed. I I can't think of a single thing that didn't change. At that stage of my life, I, I was only 22. I was on the precipice of the rest of my life. I had just gotten to an amazing new relationship, fallen in love for the first time, had just come out of the closet, was embracing myself, had also just got this amazing job in Breakfast Radio, one that I'd hustled so hard for for years and years, and was going to move from the country to the city. I'm a country boy and always dreamt of living here, like in Fitzroy and Collingwood. So the start of my life was just about to happen, and the accident completely derailed everything. So I essentially had to start again, I feel. And that's just the tangible stuff that changed. Emotionally, I was completely broken. After the accident for four months, I was pretty much locked away in my bedroom, rotting away. I was on hectic painkillers, completely just overcome with guilt and shame, could not sleep, could not eat, had to be looked after like a burden in a neck brace and back brace, completely immobilized. Everything was on pause my whole life had stopped so from then i've just had to rebuild my life from the ground up painstakingly to the point where it's only now 10 years later that i can comfortably talk about what happened to me so how long were you physically incapacitated for so that first initial recovery was around four months so neck brace back brace 
painkillers. I was a shell of myself. And it's scary to even look back. I get goosebumps thinking about that time because I was basically paralyzed. I didn't really have a routine. I wasn't sleeping properly. I was just knocking myself out with painkillers. I was overcome with night terrors, obviously dealing with PTSD, diagnosed with depression at the same time. And everything was just stopped. Nothing was moving for me. And in that stage, I eventually did lose the will to live and went to really, really dark places in my life. And that initial four months was the most intense part of my recovery. But as I've written in the book, really, and a sudden realization for me over the past couple of years is the recovery doesn't really stop. It's ongoing forever. And this is still part of it. Now talking about it to you, (laughs) this is part of my recovery and I can't wish it away. I'll always be in recovery from something like this. And a lot of trauma survivors agree. It stays with you in your body forever. You just learn to deal with it a bit better. So the emotional side of it is the longest part of the recovery. The body heals, Mm. but the trauma doesn't go away. No, not at all. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing the book is because I want to change the narrative around trauma. I, for the longest time, I was the parachute guy, the guy that survived. Even when I was in hospital in, in agonizing pain, the clinicians and doctors would come up to me and say, oh, you're the guy that survived. Oh, your parachute didn't open. Oh, what a nightmare. It's something that you would hear about in a Final Destination movie. So I tried to wish it away. I didn't want to be this trauma victim, but... Over the years through therapy, knowing that this isn't going to leave me, uh, I discovered that I am not my trauma, but I am what I become. And unfortunately for a lot of people that go through trauma, it doesn't have to be a near-death experience like I, what I went to went through, but it, it becomes your identity. You almost victimize yourself, and it's very hard to start to untangle that and be someone that feels empowered by it rather than victimized by it. What was the turning point, though? I mean, you sound like you've made an incredible emotional recovery. Mm. What was, was there a moment where it was kind of like a light bulb moment? Can you recall? Uh, (laughs) Really, I had a lot of uh, anti-light bulb moments, almost. I had so many setbacks in my recovery. Uh, the, The radio job I wanted to go back to eventually after five months when I had after the accident and recovered a little bit better. I was made redundant my first day going back to the office. I had my boyfriend's father, who I was close to, pass away with brain cancer. I just had setback after setback, losing jobs, not able to get back on with my life. And it was just making that promise to myself that I will achieve these things because I was given this second chance. So I was able to look at it not as, look at this horrible thing that's happened to me and shift the perspective to, now I've got a second chance. I've actually got to make the most of this or else I'm wasting this opportunity. I can't think about why it happened. I can't think about whose fault it is. I can't have resentment. I need to just embrace this second chance and keep fighting for my life. And here I am 10 years later. I should probably take a bit of a break. I've been a bit anal about <laughs> achieving my dreams. So I need to have a bit of a breather. But that second chance is a blessing. And the wisdom I got from it is a massive gift. And that's what keeps me going, basically. Yeah, that wisdom. Do you think because of that wisdom that, you know, post-accident, you've mm. made some life choices that are far better than perhaps some choices you would have made <laughs> if you hadn't had the accident? Yeah, uh, I was very impulsive and reckless as a kid. And I was 22. 22 is young. It's young to go through that life-altering trauma. My, my, my whole life was completely devastated. And I 
didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do afterwards. And I thought the old Brad before the accident would come back, but he died that day. Essentially, I was grieving the loss of the old person that I used to be. And I had to rebuild this new Brad, which at my core, I'm still the same. But because of what I went through, I've learned to embrace every single part of me, even my flaws, even my fears, even the bad things, uh, even my sexuality. That's one thing that I felt like I kept really hidden even before the accident. But when I landed that day, my whole world blew open and the gift was being able to rebuild myself how I truly saw myself. So I don't think I would have been able to fully realize myself if it didn't happen. It must have been a real perspective shifter, like you say, Mm. and it must have made the coming out journey seem less arduous, you know, when you were were facing it. Mm. The best thing about trauma, (laughs) which sounds so silly to say, the best thing is that I'm galvanized now. Not initially, for many, many years, maybe seven or eight years, I was still fully scarred from this and I'll forever be wounded. But now I've got wisdom to draw upon no matter what happens in my life. I can look back and go, oh shit, I survived that day. I'm a survivor and I fought tooth and nail, learning to walk again, learning to drive again, learning to be social again. I couldn't even get on planes or get on escalators. I was consumed with fear, having panic attacks all the time, a completely broken person. But because I survived that, now I've got something to draw upon when life does get more challenging. And writing the book, I I didn't think I had more healing to do. I kind of thought I was this finished product. I had paid for all the therapy over the past 10 years but I'll always be someone that needs to do work on themselves. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing because I'm only going to get better. Do you think that you would not have got better if you hadn't have had the therapy? Oh, therapy has been life-changing and life-saving. I always say that I did survive that day, but I continue to survive afterwards because I had support. My friends, my family, and therapy completely opened up my life. And even to this day, I'm a massive proponent of therapy. And it dawned on me very early on after the accident that I'd gone through something pretty extraordinary and something that needed to be talked about with a professional. (laughs) I needed professional intervention. I was borderline canatonic for most of my recovery. And if I didn't have that intervention, I wouldn't be alive. And that's pure and simple, the absolute fact. And I started to think about that person that was contemplating leaving this earth because they're so far from where I am now. So therapy was literally the thing that saved my life besides actually surviving that day. It sounds like you have an incredible will to live because you embrace that therapy so well. You must have done the therapy so well. Mm. (laughs) My God, some of those sessions, I was, like I said, I was broken. So... In these therapy sessions, we're doing a lot of CBT, which is cognitive brain therapy, which is basically rewiring your entire brain. Because when you go through trauma, there's a really important book called The Body Keeps a Score, which talks about physiologically how your mind and body is altered through trauma. And to rewire yourself physiologically is really difficult. I couldn't even say the word skydive. So in these initial sessions, a year later when I could finally leave the house, We're saying the word skydive. I'm telling my story start to finish. I'm listening to sounds of the wind. I'm looking at pictures of the sky. I had to do everything from the ground up. You're basically re-traumatizing yourself over and over. So many, many sessions I'm left as just this completely empty, vacant person because I've had to leave it all out there in therapy. And I'm so thankful that I continued through, even though I'd have 
mini panic attacks before therapy, knowing what's about to <laughs> about to happen in that room. But if I didn't push through and face my fear, I wouldn't be the fully realized person that I am now. You must be amazingly strong now emotionally. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. <laughs> Look, I am for sure. I'm galvanized. I'm, that's one of my favorite words to use because I've got all of this to look back upon and go, look, I can have a shit day at work on Monday. I'm a survivor, but I don't want to belittle what I go through in the current day just because I survived that thing 10 years ago. So I do consider myself emotionally strong, but I've got nothing to compare it to. I can't compare it to someone else's experience and say, well, I'm stronger or that person must be stronger than me or whatever. So I do consider myself emotionally strong, but I have weekdays. Of course, this is something that still consumes me. And now I've written a book where every single detail, (laughs) the exposing vulnerable details of the past 10 years are out there. And that makes me nervous. So there's new fears to confront and there's more emotional strength to be had And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because I want to be the best version of myself. The book also must feel really good having completed it. And it's an amazing read. Mm. Um, It's a a fantastic achievement. You must feel on one level, yeah, a bit scared about, oh, my God, you know. But also you must be so proud of yourself. Yeah, I am. Thank you. It's really surreal. (laughs) It's really surreal to have the darkest day of my life now be this real celebratory moment. But this has been the best contribution to my life I've ever made. And I've made some really good contributions, A, deciding to live. But the book has been the best contribution because I'll always have this now. It's so hard doing a book, getting the funding, working with the publisher, working with press, the typeface, the font, the cover, every single detail went through me. And it's like I was a one-man little company. And I'm not a logistical admin sort of person. I've got ADHD. I just want to do the fun stuff. So writing it and publishing it, The achievement of doing that in and of itself was a lot, but the fact that I'm able to talk about my trauma so publicly, I'll always be proud and now I have it forever. Brad Guy, it has been a true pleasure to meet you here at 3CR. The book is called Freefall. It's published by Longueville Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a fabulous read. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Thank you.
last night and the pips there. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Well, actors Bradley Storer and Nish Matthew feature in your good man Charlie Brown, starting June 16 at the Alex Theatre in St Kilda here in Melbourne. And we chatted this week. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. How much fun for you guys. Oh, so much fun. So uh, fun. Uh, uh. Really? Like, it's been a quick turnaround, hasn't it? I mean, you were cast six weeks ago and now you're uh, opening soon. Yeah, about oh six, God, six to eight weeks. I know. So it's been so quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's been wonderful. Very, like, quick pace. But, um, no, it's been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Dinesh, oh. tell us about Snoopy. What a fun role for you. I love the images, uh, the promos. You're loving it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's look. I've been wanting to play Snoopy for about ten years. It's, I love this show so much, and Snoopy is. Um, I've been, you know, huge fan of the comic strip and the, the comic books. I grew up reading those little comic books and stuff like that. So, having to play such a uh, interesting dog, <laughs> and I kind of based it on. Uh, my my dog who passed away about a year and a half ago. Oh, um, it's a bit of a is a grey. It was a greyhound. So this you know Snoopy's a beagle, but he has very big <laughs> greyhound tendencies. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's a beagle with the greyhound rising. There yeah, we go. <laughs> that's right. And then I'm and I'm quite tall, so I do hang <laughs> over uh, things just like Tigger used to hang over sofas and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. so Dinesh is quite a sight when he's on the doghouse. <laughs> Tell us about Schroeder. Oh, yeah. So, Schroeder, yeah. Um, so, of course, if people remember the classic comics, Schroeder's the one who's always bent over at the piano while Lucy's, like, laying on top talking to him while he's trying to concentrate. Um, I love playing Schroeder. He's just my little oddball. Oh, just, yeah, every time we're but doing scenes, I've discovered these new wonderful things about him. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. you got to watch the Schroeder dance. The Schroeder dance is exceptional. <laughs> As the rehearsal period has gone on, there has been more and more dance ad libs for Schroeder. <laughs> so good. Oh, in fact, I'm finding it hard to break out of the Schroeder <laughs> style of dancing now, which is once you see it, you'll kind of go, oh, wow, that's a, that's quite a very specific kind of dance. Yes. It's not quite contemporary, not quite, not quite, you know, interpretive, but it's, it's somewhere in that, in that realm. <laughs> you both see in the show. Yes, we do. I, um, we both have but very big numbers. Um, I said, well, you know, there are lots of big numbers in the show, but uh, I was say you have you have no, a choir. I, do, I have a, a choir in my song because uh, my uh, my uh, solo song Beethoven Day was not in the original. Uh, uh, You're a good man, Charlie Brown. It was written for the revival in the nineties. Um, no, it's a very very big song which I love to sing. I'm gonna say, and Snoopy gets the eleven o'clock number of the show. Gets supper time. Oh my god, I think I'm still recovering from. <laughs> uh, from doing that, uh. I said. Uh, for those of you who don't know the show, it's a full song and dance number, and particularly with the choreography by Lisa Marie Thompson, it's uh, very. It's the top hat and cane. Yeah, yep, <laughs> the Snoopy equivalent of a top hat cane number with full choreography. Loads <laughs> of fun, and I can't show the pain when I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's showbiz kid. <laughs> Oh my knee! <laughs> oh gosh! But yeah, it's so much fun. It's so I'm gonna say it's so much fun to watch supper time. It, lo- it looks amazing. Look, the the whole show is just it's just if you haven't seen it before, <gasps> mm. you can you can have a listen to it on Spotify and then just get yourself mm. used to the the music. It's beautiful music. Um, it was done as a concept album to start with, mm-hmm. um, and then um, basically. Was- 
It became a off-Broadway show in the East Village in New York in the late 1960s, I yeah. believe, before it was revived on Broadway in, yeah, the late 90s. Yeah. Um, and they couldn't get rights to actually write the show um, because, um, you know, the, the, the company didn't want to release the rights to the, all the characters. And they sent them the, uh, Charles Schultz the concept album and he loved it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yes, of course. So immediately got the rights to it, wrote uh. it. And so here wonderful. it is. I mean, it's been going since the 1960s. How 67. Have we, yeah. How have we adapted it for a 2023 audience? Well, it's so interesting because even just with the script as it is, I'm just like, it's still so familiar. Even, but even mm. though we know the characters, I'm just like, no, these still feel like very contemporary kids. Just, yeah, you know, this is very... Very like very. Oh, like the archetypes are just very still relevant. Yeah, um, I mean, kids don't change that much, except for maybe iPads these days. Yeah, but yeah. apart from that, like they still have the same issues, the same problems, the same things that they do. Yeah. Um, well, I'm speaking from a dog perspective. It's the same thing for a dog. <laughs> they don't have iPads or anything. I mean, They're yeah. just still How have things obsessed with balls in the 1960s. And, uh, yes. and uh, yeah, have <laughs> bird friends. Um, we have Woodstock in we this do, show. We which do is have awesome. a Woodstock in this show, which is an addition, I believe. Yes. That not in the not in the original cast, but. We do have a wonderful Woodstock for ours. Amazing. Yeah, uh, who plays does so many wonderful things in the show. Can't wait for you to see her. And um, helps sing Supper Time, which is yes, very... it's a duo number Ooh. in this version, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> uh, gotta have someone to grab the top hats and canes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a great show for families, but it's also a yes. great show. It's all ages, really, isn't it? I Be- mean, yeah. even if you're an adult, you're because probably going to enjoy it because you remember it as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I think older audiences will absolutely love of it. Of course. Because it just comes flooding mm. back. The, the characters come flooding back. Exactly. And, like, I think pretty much every generation's had some exposure to the Peanuts characters, just either through the original comics. Like, when I was growing up in the 90s, I knew them mainly through the animated series, which was always on TV. Um, so I did, I'll be honest, I I didn't know the show that well before we uh, before we've done it, but I was like, I knew the characters quite yeah. well. Um, yeah, and you know, I was walking uh, through Kmart today to buy something completely <gasps> different, and they have a Peanuts T-shirts and stuff yes. like that. So you're like the Snoopy character, etc. So it's there. By the way, I'm I'm not in a Snoopy costume or anything like that, but I think I kind of try to embody that. <laughs> yeah, we summon the energy of Snoopy with the costuming, but it's not an actual like full dog outfit. <laughs> Be hard to sing in that. Were you surprised with your castings? Did you expect them to cast you as the characters that you got? Oh, uh, look, because I didn't know the show that well. I I knew the classic kind of archetype of Schroeder, um, and then uh, I was I was delightfully surprised to get it. And then uh, the direction I've I've gone with my characterization, I think, isn't entirely out of the scope of how it is. I think it's a little bit different to the to the animated series and the comic just because I like to play Schroeder as just someone who is that classic person who just gives you nothing um, expressively. It's just like absorbs everything, just gives you nothing to work with, which is hilarious in its own way. Um, yeah. But just, which is also why whenever Lucy's constantly always trying with but Schroeder, poor Lucy and just Schroeder gives her nothing to work with. <laughs> Yeah, uh, look, I, I personally, I wanted Snoopy. Uh, Why? From the outside, Snoopy's been my goal for a long time. I, I, it's weird, like I, 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 like in Shrek, I want to play the donkey. Uh, in Snoop, uh, in this show, I wanted to play Snoopy. Yeah. Um, the donkey'd be great in Shrek. Sorry, the donkey'd be great in Shrek. Oh, the, oh. the donkey role is amazing in Shrek. I um, wanted to play the hyenas in Lion King. So it's all, all of those ones that, are, like, you know. But you know, in the Lion King auditions, they wanted me for you know to audition me for Mufasa. But I'm like, I want to do the the the, the funny laughs. Um, 
just too tall, I think. Um, but yeah, but um, yeah, in the in the in the cold lakes, they they wanted me to read for Schroeder as well. Oh yes. But yes. I'm like, I could not possibly do the Schroeder that you do. <laughs> Like, your Schroeder is just, like, completely different to anything I've seen. It's just so beautiful and so really? funny and so snort-laugh-worthy. And I do snort-laugh quite a lot in the show, not in the show, but, like, I'm trying to get it out of my system. <laughs> On side of stage. I'm trying to get it out of my system before the show starts, but there's a lot of uh Oh, we're all side snorting, like, snorting side of stage, just, like, trying to keep it down. But <laughs> even in our run last night, there were some new, oh, uh, like, inflections and iterations of things where we were just like, how happened before <laughs> as people find their characters more as we go of on course, and yeah. and find new ways of saying the lines that we've heard yeah, you know yeah. many many times because of course pretty much the entire script does come pretty much verbatim from the original comics like i've gone back through and like actually found yeah. where mine have all come from um but yeah it's just when they're embodied and just there's so many different ways you can actually play them it's so wonderful yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just it's just so much fun so do you kind of feel like you revert to being a kid again like you know Definitely. Uh, me, I'm just, it is literally just going back to that full, just full body commitment, just like there's n- no separation between you and what you're saying because you are saying what you're feeling all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> just right. like, yeah. Pretty, brutally honest. <laughs> n- br- oh, brutally honest, particularly Schroeder. Oh, my God, uh, yeah. <laughs> he is. He can just give you full, well, just tear you to shreds straight to your face, but like never with any kind of meanness. It's just full, full Full honesty. honesty. <laughs> I'm going to say, but Snoopy does have, I think, has a bit more diplomacy. Um, uh, just well, by virtue of being a dog. Yeah, by virtue of being a dog. And he, he's, you know, he's got that one-track mind, but also he's, like, for food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just had to clarify. And also, you know... He, 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 you know, he doesn't like particular members of the cast. Like, there's there's people like Lucy he's just not impressed with. Um, mm-hmm. And he's a bit more adult than everyone else, if you know... If you you know if you know the comics, he, he does his philosopher in terms of his philosophy. He's just like he might be younger than the kids, but also in terms of dog years, he's a lot older. Yeah, yeah. so so he brings a lot. He of understands that. his position. He mm-hmm. wants and and his imagination is obviously out there. That's it's awesome. interesting though. Like you've modelled your interpretation of Snoopy on a greyhound. That wasn't <laughs> how that wasn't how it was written. He's That's a quite a departure. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a beagle. I mean, in, what in the, you couldn't get a bigger contrast between dogs. Oh, it's it's funny though. Um, being around, being, having been around, when you're a greyhound person, you know every other greyhound in the neighbourhood. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've got four greyhounds around my area right now that I that co-parent, I um, yes. that I co-parent. Um, but they have the burst of energy, like mm. it's just crazy burst of energy, but only for five minutes, yeah. and then they want to go sleep. And, Which is very and to Snoopy. me, that is very Snoopy. <laughs> Snoopy you know, has big bursts of energy, and then he's like, "Oh, I'm done. Uh, where's my kennel? I'm just gonna go sleep." Yeah. And um, all he wants to do is really sleep in peace uh, and get and, food. And yet we never leave you alone. Yeah. It's like always the Sally Brown trying to bring him out for the rabbit hunt. Yeah. yeah. All these kids come and annoy him and oh, wake him up. There's yeah. a lot of me waking up. Yeah, and a lot of getting bothered by the little roundhead kid whenever he comes home from school. The little roundheaded kid is what he calls Charlie Brown. Um, How do you kind of physically prepare for these roles and then let down afterwards, you know, when you're not rehearsing? Because, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's high energy. 
Yeah, it's about interesting for me because I do find Schroeder's physicality accidentally coming into my day-to-day thing, things. Like, for example, I was but we were rehearsing at the Alex Theatre where we were also performing the show. And um, as we were going, as I was walking from rehearsal to the bathroom down the hall, um, I was just noticing as I was walking down, I had my arms just plastered to my side, my shoulders up around my ears. And I was like, oh, wait, this is how Schroeder walks and I'm carrying that with me. <laughs> I didn't even realise that was his walk. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> Oh well, you try you try doing little growls and little yeah, 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 yeah. as as you're walking around on the street because you're like running. The, you, you tend to run the lines in your head, of course, yeah. and then every now and then you go, "Oh, what if I delivered the line like this?" And you try it out, and then people are like, "What's going on?" At the end of something, and you're like, "Oh, okay, I'm doing Sorry. it in public now." I was going to ask you that. Do you find yourself walking through like the CBD, like you know, being a dog? Yeah, oh, no, not not as a dog, not in all fours, but this, uh, yeah, you, you do. You're, you're running lines because Snoopy's got quite a lot of yeah. big blocks of text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a big, big monologue bits. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, just making sure you get it right, and then you're you're obviously adding in little dog noises to to sort of extend the emotion. Like I what? Suppose. Do one for us. <gasps> you know, just little groans and mumbles, and when you when you're sleeping, you just do. That sort of thing. So you find yourself dozing off, making dog noises. No, 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 not dozing off. When I'm when I'm running the running lines as I'm on the tram or something like that, I'm running lines and in my head, and then you go, oh, I wonder if I could do this noise, and you're like, oh, and then you're, oh, okay, I can do it, and everyone's looking at me because you're wearing headphones as well. <laughs> that sounds lots of fun. Oh, it's fun. It's so much fun. And yeah, something I have noticed, I was discussing this with uh, Brittany Leslie, both the producer and the actor playing Sally Brown. Just noticing how the Peanuts characters, they were, the way that they're depicted is a little bit like, but very, very subversive of typical gender roles, particularly for the 1960s, because mm. the boys are very, they're soft, they're gentle, they're like mm. very emotional and like very thinking, whereas it's the female characters who are very dynamic, very, they've got the like the very big energy and they command the room. Mm. Um, it's like, it's so wonderful that like, yeah, even of its time, it was still pushing very gently against um, expected gender norms and just, yeah, like, but yeah, having these beautiful, like sensitive male characters and like these big take charge female characters. And Schultz was very progressive. They, like, mm. you know, introduced the first sort of black character in, in the 70s and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So in, in a comic strip, which was huge in that time. Mm. And I know that um, a lot of people were like, when are we going to read this paper again? And all this boycotting newspapers and stuff like that. But he was just adamant, no, this is this is fine. This mm-hmm. is normal. This is what you would find in a play, you know, playground. Mm-hmm. So there's a political element to it and a queer element. Mm, exactly. Now, um... Yeah, no, it's yeah, just very, very gentle. Like it's not in your face necessarily, but it's definitely there, just under the surface, just slowly. And particularly in, like such a mainstream form of like of the newspaper comic, it's like no, it's there, and it's just subtly making its way in. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> What's the most challenging part about the role, apart from breaking into dog noises? Ah, <laughs> oh, for me, uh, so the the last song that I do. Uh, by myself, um, well, with but, but, Woodstock this time, is uh, called Supper Time, and he's very excited because it's supper time, and he's just thought that everyone's forgotten about his food, and then it arrives, and he's very excited. So there's a lot of, so from starting on top of the doghouse to getting down on the ground, and then um, going through lots of different sort of mm-hmm. uh, uh, styles of music 
um, and having to dance the entire way through mm-hmm. while delivering high notes. Um, that's a bit hard, <laughs> but I'm getting used to it. Yeah, yeah that is once really you get used that, to it, that it's, must it's be like on. you know having to chew gum and walk and run and do yeah. a marathon yeah. and do like you know play Twister at the same it's, time. It's really funny that the first time you do it, you're just like, how am I ever yeah, going to do, do this? Yeah, yeah. But it's as you keep rehearsing, your body just gets used to it. And then you're fine. Yep. It doesn't. It's the challenge of the music theatre actor, just making all three happen at yeah. once. As, yeah. as long as you rehearse it over and over again, your yep. body just gets used to it yeah. and then doesn't doesn't actually phase you anymore. What's it going to be like when you stop? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> oh, a good question. Sad. Yeah, I know. It's going to be very sad. It's a, um, it's such a beautifully cute show. Mm. It's funny, but it's just like I love just when I'm not on stage just watching mm. um, the little vignettes happen around and it's just so pretty and so cute and it's just there's something to adults getting to be kids again because yeah. we, we so often don't get to be kids again. I'm, I'm a huge kid. Like I <laughs> run around parks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just lovely to see that and I think that's what I'll miss from not yeah. being on stage doing these particular characters and seeing characters like yeah. this. Yeah. So you get to be a kid again, child again. June 16 to July 2nd, uh, Alex Theatre, 135 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, for your good man, Charlie Brown, Dinesh Matthew, and Bradley Stora. Thanks for the chat. No, Thanks thank you so, so much. It's a beautiful day today Woke up this morning with sunshine on my face And since the storm clouds have lifted I keep drifting back to you, yeah, you And you alone have the power to redeem me I was lost and I'm still lost But I can't deny the feeling It'll be okay, my friend, my brother, till the end, it'll be okay. It's a beautiful day today. You always say you shouldn't be here. Your brush with death was what to need, dear. And it left you looking pretty.
Album that was beautiful. I am delighted to have Ruth Catarellos and Alana Louise in the studio to chat about Woman with a Tomahawk, which is happening at La Mama, uh, June 7 to 18. Welcome. Thank you, James. Hello. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, Alana. Ah, it's it's a, a play you're both acting in. Tell us about your role, first of all. Um, well, I I guess, so the play is kind of centred around Ruth. I'm Alana, hello. Um, and yeah, me and Nisha, the other actress in the play, we are, are kind of oracles of her voice. We kind of, um, I guess, restate like the more important, more anxious thoughts look, that Ruth has. Yeah, look, it's a tricky one because it's not actually a narrative. So... Um, you know, in terms of we've all got different monologues and we've all got bits that we're doing together um, and there are occasions where, where yeah, as Alana was saying, I'm she's kind of echoing my thoughts, if you like. So it's kind of, it's not a straight, it's not a straight pl- uh, play in terms of having one role. We kind of, we play lots of different lots roles, Lots of different things, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting and, and lots of different feeling states as well. So I think... Um, there are scenarios where we're different characters and then we are scenarios where we're kind of um, physically embodying the feeling of the piece. <laughs> that sounds really abstract, but it is. It's an abstract piece. It is quite abstract. Yeah. Ruth, you wrote the play. It's about a woman who was shot by the police. Tell us a bit more about the story. Look, it, it's not... So this, the story centres around, I guess, different ideas around mental health and some of it's around my journey, but some of it... The an, a, original provocation was about um, being in a particular state and stage of my life where I was in a, a lot of grief and, and working out my own stuff when... Um, when I heard about a woman who'd been killed um, by police. And then I did a bit of research and kind of looked at, you know, numerous people who have. So um, there are a few of them who feature in the show. But that experience, um, I wrote a song on the basis of that, which kind of started the the stream. So it's something that's been in the, in the, pro- in the process for some years, I have to say. But, yeah, and a lot of it centres around while there's, bits of my own journey it also centers around the way we as a society deal with people who are struggling in in pain and particularly around the way that the police have and continue to do as we were discussing um earlier about the 95 year old woman who was tasered recently so you know it says a lot about the criminalisation of mental health and how it's, you know, framed as a law and order issue, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the prepare, um, preparedness for people who are in positions of authority and how, how equipped they are actually to deal with people who are, who are struggling. And struggling means that you're not, you're not always compassmentous. Sometimes you're angry or frustrated or, you know, and depending on where your health's at. So, you know, it's got lots of those threads through it, I guess, the piece. Alana, you mentioned the oracle kind of role. Tell us a yes. bit more about that. Oh, I... Um, so we, with the director, Sarah Vickery, we've been doing a lot of um, Marina Abramovich's techniques to kind of um, approach it physically. We've kind of started um, from 
the physical side and then we've brought like sort of the physical things that we've learned through these Marina and Bromwich's techniques to the text and um, with one of those um, physical exercises we've kind of Nisha and I have kind of become sort of like these oracles um, uh, that kind of stand either side of Ruth that um, yeah sit with Ruth in her pain at times and her anxieties and um, oversee it and yeah echo it so I think we, we came to that. that that was just for one specific part though um, and we kind of found that through these very physical um, techniques that Sarah has been um, talking and guiding us through yeah, I was just going to say that, that you're actually feeling and expressing what Ruth's character is going through. Yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are times. So, so there are there are times that, that my voice is present and there are other times where I'm kind of a bit like the woman with the tomahawk. And so in those moments, which are – the writing is relatively fractured um, uh, – in a good way, I think, um, but 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 there we, we've got those those echoes which kind of add to the add, add to the the momentum of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, sounds, yes. it sounds like a great tragedy almost. <laughs> uh, look, I think there are times where we all operate as kind of chorus to each other. So we kind of you know there are times when one of us is doing a solo and the other is doing a, a, a duet, which may be physical or it may be vocal. Um, and there are times where we're all playing. Uh, different elements of the of of the of the piece that we're doing, and there are times we're all doing it together. So, you know, um, yeah, it's keeping us on our toes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> in a very fun way, in a very fun way. That's you know, um, that's really starting to come together. It's amazing that you can feel fun from such a full-on <laughs> kind of story. Yeah, well, I think even, you know, there are moments that are uh, definitely, there are moments that are heavier within the content of the play. But I think, you know, that's part of the joy as an actor is kind of to find the the, fa the fun and the play in that. And I think Sarah in particular, um, again, is really good at, you know, helping us explore those moments and, you know, it's a play around mental health, so you don't want your audience ideally to leave traumatised. You want them to, you know, also see that there are moments of fun and also there's contrast. You know, sometimes there are darker moments that we're doing in a much more uh, fun way Yeah. Um, that kind of, you know, um, are in direct opposition with the text. Wow. So it sounds very physical for you, Alana. Well, yeah, I think it's physical for all three of us. Um, we've been doing like a lot of work um, early stages because the rehearsal process is, you know, it's been actually a bit longer than what you usually rehearse for. We, we had time to explore things physically, get to know each other's bodies and movements and impulses more clearly before we um, started actually working on the text. We had a whole month of physical exploration. So, yeah, for the three of us, it's very it's very physical. Um but it's all, but all adding to the kind of the feeling states that we, we go through in the play. It yeah. must make you really in touch with your body. I'm fascinated by this kind of, you know, three months of physical exploration. Tell us more about that. Yeah. 
So a lot of it was tuning into like doing different physical things that might have um, might replicate, say, an emotional state, um, to find a kind of um, what, what uh, Sarah's been describing as etudes, um, and kind of using those in a different rhythm, but also working with each other and kind of riffing off each other and what we're doing. But a lot of it's also been about tuning into each other so that we're, walk, we're, we're working as a unit, if you like. So we're responding to each other, we're following each other, we're leading each other. Um, yeah, and there's also parts where there's room to play in the moment, like on stage in real time, where we have a set structure of certain physical actions that we can do, but we can do them at any time. So, uh, and we just have to like live feed off of each other's impulse to... Um, either you know juxtapose what the other person's doing or do it at the same time as what the other person's doing um, but we the, it's not chore- the, those moments aren't specifically choreographed we can um, yeah there's freedom to do as we please in in that specific moment so that means you know each night it's potentially going to be a different show wow it doesn't sound like you're traumatised at all by by the play. And it sounds like that's because you've got really good regulatory structures in place with your rehearsals and with your exploration to kind of manage that. It actually sounds really good for your mental health. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I mean, Sarah is a, a very uh, aware, I think, and responsive um, director to actors in the room. And we've also, uh, we're working with um, our stage manager, Navakaran, who is also really tuned in too. So there is a lot of care. You know, we get there and we check in, you know, what percentage you are at, where are you at, you know, how are you going now? So there is a lot of care in the space for us as we're working. And there are moments, you know, there are, I've certainly, I certainly have some moments of kind of going, oh, you know, um, I'm, I'm leaking at the moment, but you just kind of go, all right, breathe through it, move on. And, you know, it's, you know, I mean, I'm really enjoying the rehearsal process. Yeah. It's terrifying yeah. a bit yeah. um, leading up to the show because of the writing, because I wrote it, but um, it's, it's been a great process. What's that like, writing it and then performing it and not being the director as well? Um, is it challenging to kind of, you know, have the boundaries between being the writer and the actor? Yeah, look, it's something that Sarah and I talked about from the get-go and she has been very, uh, again, really, it's been an open dialogue all, all along the way. I mean, you know, there have been times where she's kind of gone, I'm not sure, I think we could edit that and I've gone, yeah, that's great. And there have been other times where I've gone, no, I really want to keep that for this reason. And there have been times where I went, I, I think that can go, that bit can go. So, you know, and even in the room, it's been a pretty open dialogue. Um, and, you know, I'm really conscious my role is primarily at this stage as an actor. So, you know, that's that's the hat. I, you know, I think the other day I might have taken off the hat at one point and said something and just kind of really kind of went, all right, now I'm putting my actor's hat back on. So, you know, there's real clarity around that. But again, I think, you know, we've all been working so beautifully with each other in the room that there's been a really, it's been really easy, a really easy flow. Yeah. And I really sense that. It sounds like it's much more enjoyable performing in them than perhaps it was writing it. Yeah, look, the, the writing has been over a lot of years and, you know, it's been through a couple of edits and it did have a, a brief exploration series at La Mama before they gave me a full season, which is fantastic. So it's had a couple of incarnations. Um, but, yeah, you know, 
I mean, it's because I've written I've written it as vignettes over a, uh, over quite a period of like time. How long? Oh, look, you know, the, 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 the initial provocation happened in the early 90s. So it's been sitting with me for a long time. And there are, and also, you know, like there are bits, so Sarah said at some stage, maybe a month or so ago, she said, we need one little bit at the end, you know. So I went home and wrote something for that. So, you know, that's new. Um, so, you know, the, the process of writing and the provocations are... Yeah, I don't feel traumatised by that either. Every once in a while I'll, I'll be saying something and I'll get in touch with the emotion and I'll kind of go, yeah, okay, I can feel that one. Um, but, you know, that's, that's also part of the joy of being an actor as well. You kind of, you know, you move in and out of those states. As long as you don't get stuck in them, that's the main thing. It sounds like there's a lot of movement, a lot of emotional movement mm. in this performance and uh, it does sound truly inspirational. Well, that's nice to hear. It is. It is. It's inspirational. And it's inspirational having Ruth in the room as well. I, I think there's certain moments where, um, you know, I, I, I remind myself that this is, it's parts of it are true and it's coming from a real place and it kind of makes me as an actor want to defend the story um, more and and say what I mean a little bit more without mincing it up. Like, there's a certain rawness having it be partly real and having that person who it's partly real from standing right next to you. You're like, okay, I have to, um, yeah, I have to mean what I'm saying and do it justice. Um, yeah, especially when there's parts where you get a bit emotional and I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes me emotional. It's And it's very relatable as well. It's not... Um, I wouldn't say it's as much of like an autobiography as it is just um, kind of revealing feeling states that maybe we don't necessarily talk about as much. Um, yeah, there's that, there's a lot of there's a lot of it's very raw, it's very emotional. Um, yeah, it's very good. <laughs> Woman with a Tomahawk. It is happening June 7 to 18 at La Mama in Carlton. Ruth Catarellos and Alana Louise, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Thank, thank you so much, James. James. Seconds and 
Go there, the woman by the well. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.